Dad, are you ready? Are you ready for your yep. first question? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Welcome. It's so good to have you on the show. Can you t- take us back to the beginning of this story? Um, the Isle of Wight Festival, what inspired it? And what were the initial challenges in bringing it to life? Because, you know, you've had this idea, but then it became something absolutely massive. What on earth made you decide to put on a festival on the Isle of Wight? Well, it, it actually started by accident. My brother, Ronnie, who... Um, he took on a part-time job as a fundraiser to raise money for a swimming pool in the Isle of Wight. And in casting around for ideas on how to raise money, he got to the point of putting on a, like a one-day festival of some sort. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the start of it. So it did kind of stop by accident. I, I got involved fairly quickly. I had a printing business at the time, and I was printing all the tickets and publicity material and things for it, and generally getting involved. The Swimming Pool Association didn't like the look of our festival. They said we're going to get lots of drugs and sex and rock and roll coming to the Isle of Wight. And they, they um, disconnected from it and advertised in the local paper to say it was nothing to do with them anymore. Um, and it, they just handed it over to us. Well, the first event was kind of okay. We broke even just about with that 10,000 people came. We had the Jefferson Airplane and crazy world of Arthur Brown on the bill, who were quite big names then, and still are, in fact. And um, we learned from that, if we're going to do it again, which we wanted to do, we had to kind of get over the the big problem we had in the Isle of Wight, which is that, first of all, Isle of Wight people don't support anything. And secondly... um, To get people to come from the mainland, you've got to put something on that you can't normally see on the mainland. It's got to be a special thing. And we were looking for a big act, a really big star. And there weren't many big stars around. I mean, and we had Jefferson Airplane, as I've said. Anything bigger than F- Jefferson Airplane, you went to the next league, of which there were kind of like the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Elvis Presley. And that, that was about it, really, in that kind of league that you would never normally see in a concert hall on the mainland. And now, obviously, the Beatles were splitting up. Elvis Presley was completely unsuitable anyway, and obviously inaccessible. Is it left Bob Dylan? And we made a bid for Bob Dylan. Um, I was 23 at the time. Ronnie was 24. We were pretty naive and didn't really know what we were doing, but we managed it. In those days, it was much easier. We got through to Dylan's management on the telephone. In fact, Dylan's actual manager, Albert Grossman, so it took mm-hmm. our call. You'd never get that today. You wouldn't even find the phone number. Going back, how did you get Jefferson Airplane? Well, Jefferson, that, that was a stroke of luck as well. Ronnie had found some London agent that, that put a whole bill of artists together. And they were the kind of the, the B and C listers of rock and pop at the time. The people, there were some names like Fairport Convention who, who were just starting out and The Move and... Um, a, a group called Orange Bicycle. It was something to do with the Beatles Apple organization. They're, they're very small acts that you could just book. And then this this agency came to me and said, look, we've got an opportunity here. Jefferson Airplane are doing a tour in Europe with the doors. And and the airplane are interested in finding another, another date for Britain. Would you be interested? Hmm. And we snapped it up, basically. Anyway, basically, so a lot of um, bidding with, with Bob Dylan's management. Bear in mind, Bob Dylan was the biggest act in the world at that time. He'd not worked for two and a half years. 
uh, he'd had a motorcycle accident and people thought he'd never work again. There are people trying to get in from all over the world and, and they, they'd just been battered away by the management. And how they managed to talk to us um, with such interest, I'm not sure, but they did. We we put it to them that, that Bob Dylan could come to the Isle of Wight and have a holiday with his family and we'll, we'll provide a manor house and a, and a limousine with a chauffeur and a nanny for the children and so on, you know, give the whole works, you know, we can do all that and make a big occasion. And I think they like the sound of that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other things going on in the background that we weren't aware of at the time that were hugely important in rock history, which is that the Woodstock Festival had been put in Dylan's backyard. Dylan lived in Woodstock. They thought it would bounce him into coming out to play. And he resented that really enormously. He had hippies invading his garden and one of them got into his house. You know, he really hated the whole thing. He later wrote in his book that Woodstock Festival was a sub that was a sum total of all that bullshit. Something like that. He said in his book about it. Anyway, he wanted to get out of Woodstock and do something else. His management were trying to get him back on stage. And his management was splitting up the two guys, Albert Grossman, I mentioned who also lived in Woodstock, who had fallen out with Dylan, and they were virtually suing each other by then. And Grossman's partner, Bert Block, in New York, was uh, the person I was talking to, and he was also able to talk to Dylan, whereas Grossman couldn't. So we've got this kind of peculiar setup going on where Bert Block's wanting Dylan to get out on stage and start working again. He can talk to Dylan. Dylan's hating Woodstock. Grossman wants him to do Woodstock, but Grossman can't even talk to him. Anyway, to cut a long short story short, Dylan agrees to do the Isle of Wight and get the hell out of there. He he actually set sail. I didn't set sail. He, he boarded the QE2, the, the big ocean liner that had been launched that year. He boarded that on the day that the Woodstock Festival started, on the 15th of August, to come to England. And that was all part of our package we got him a passage on the QE2 by coincidence was sailing just at the right time. But his son got injured on the boat. A cabin door hit him and he had to be taken off the ship and go to hospital. And so they had to leave and disembark. And we thought that was all scuppered. Anyway, they flew over the following week. But just to give you the timeline, they had um, literally boarded... <laughs> for England on the day that the Woodstock Festival started, Friday the 15th of, of August. Our festival is on the 30, his appearance on the 31st of August, so a couple of weeks later. So it all worked out all right in the end. Now that was huge. It was massive news in England. It was all over the papers. It was on the TV and the radio. Uh, it was international news that Bob Dylan was going to be performing. Um, it was like we'd won the lottery, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I bet. It's not even going to the financial side of it. We had to raise, in today's money, about three-quarters of a million pounds in the course of about five days. Okay. Um, I had to fly to New York to sign contracts and meet Dylan, all in about space of about five days. And I didn't even have a passport. I'd never been abroad. <laughs> I, had to, I had to spend two of those days getting a passport and U.S. visa together and also helping to raise this money that I had to take with me. They, they told me to... Don't forget the dollars, by the way, they said, um, when you're coming over. 
And we, we, we didn't they, they said that to you, if I remember, and you didn't have the dollars at all. Any on it. <laughs> at that particular moment. But um, it, all, it all came to pass. We, we, we didn't have cash, but we got guarantees from people of substance. And that was enough. They accepted that. And we had 15 days to convert the guarantees into cash. Well, of course, the moment we signed the contract, tickets go on sale, and we've got a huge cash flow coming in, and we have cash flow is enough to to pay to pay out this. As I say, it was, it was thirty-seven thousand pounds, but today that would be about a quarter of a million, and that all happened within a matter of a few weeks. You were someone who was in the Isle of Wight, in, on the Isle of Wight, decided to put a festival on, just believed, yeah, do you know what? We can do this. Let's go after Bob Dylan. I mean, I don't think most people would have the self-belief or the courage to even come up with such a plan, um, especially in a situation where, you know, it sounds so impossible, it feels so impossible. Like, what were you thinking? Where did you get this tenacity from? Well, I guess it was just a, a case of any port in a storm, you know. I, I think if we hadn't got Dylan, we may not have done a second Isle of Wight Festival because it, it, it wasn't that viable. With ordinary, you know, B-list artists, it, it, it needed something special. And if we didn't yeah. get Dylan, I didn't see that we didn't really have any money to finance it anyway. Um, it was all it was all on a wing and a prayer, really, trying to get Dylan. And we were just very lucky. But we did have we, we were tenacious about it. And we yeah. that summer in June that year, there was um, the moon landing when, when men worked walked on the moon. And we, we we talked about this as though we 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 got to deal with this like it's a military operation, like putting a man on the moon. You know, every detail's got to be right, and and the communications back and forth to to New York with mm. lots of documents, and we we printed a booklet, all sorts of things for us. We made a little film. It all had to be so carefully done, and we considered every detail as we went along. I exaggerated my age. I think I said I was twenty seven. <laughs> um, How old were we, you? We were supposed. I was twenty-three. 20, 23. We were supposedly, um, you know, straight-up businessmen. I, I didn't have long hair. I wasn't a hippie or anything like that. I, I, I was probably the only person at the festival wearing a collar and tie. Um, you know, we we put on an image of being res respectful businessmen, and I think that Dylan's management wanted that. That they, they didn't want um, sort of hippies coming along. Funny enough, Woodstock, the Woodstock people did go yeah. around like hippies and they, they did the whole hippie thing all the time. And they had they had little sort of dope drawers in their office for, for their guests and all this sort of thing when when um when people visited them. They sort of just to make it look like they're really cool. Well, to my mind, that was not going to encourage serious businessmen to want to deal with you. But they they seemed to get away with at Woodstock. But with the Dylan, with the Dylan Festival, how many how many people came to it? Well, it was about one hundred fifty thousand. Um, fifty thousand. So what what did what did the residents of the Isle of Wight think of that? Well, this this was the next stage, and and um, if I can plug my books at this point, the first book is called Stealing Dylan from Woodstock, and the second volume it covers the nineteen seventy events, and it's um, the, it's called the last great event. Well. The, second, the first part of the story I've, I've just given you about this whole process of getting Dylan and then the actual event itself, the second book is all about the battle to get the festival on. Um, um, 
and the difficulty of dealing with the local authorities and the local residents. There was a campaign against it. We had to fight court injunctions. We had a terrible time for a whole year. It was like a battle raging, and we couldn't even find a festival site. Well, it, it was the last minute in, in um, July 1970 that we finally got a site. We were advertising tickets, and tickets were being sold, and the venue we just put down as the Isle of Wight. It didn't state a venue. It was only afterwards that we realized the danger we were in, because what oh. happened was that tickets had gone on sale, and they were selling very well. Um, we'd had to pay artists' deposits, of, you know, substantial amounts. I mean, artists were typically about £10,000 each, and you'd pay 5000 deposit, and all of that's coming out of ticket money. Now, had, had we failed to find a site and had to call the thing off at the last minute, we would not have been able to re re refund any tickets. There would have been a huge scandal, and there, there would have, we would have possibly been criminally liable for running a business in that way. There was a very dangerous situation we got ourselves into. But at the last minute, we did get a site, and it was a pretty good site in many ways. We had certain problems we could talk about, but it was... Um, and it became a huge event. But, but mm. if I can just backtrack for a minute. In, yeah, in January 1970, when we were considering how can we top Bob Dylan, you know, have, a, have an artist of Bob Dylan's caliber or, or more, mm. we couldn't. And so what we decided was this concept, and here's where critical mass comes in, um, the concept of a raft of artists. Now, by then... Bob Dylan's manager that I've been dealing with, Bert Block in New York, became our US agent for booking talent for 1970. That's how successful we've been with the Dylan people. And that was a major breakthrough. Plus the fact that a lot of artists were beating a path to our door to get on our festival. So it was quite easy to book acts. And we decided that we we're going to get a raft of artists. And we got about 20 of the top artists in the world, um, what you might call the B-listers after, after that top three that I mentioned. So, you, you know, you've got Joni Mitchell, you've got The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. um, Leonard Cohen, Chicago, Miles Davis, of all people, um, you know, and just incredible bill of artists. You, you'll see them all in, in the book there. And it was just such a massive raft of artists that had never been seen before like that. And apart from Woodstock had a similar bill, but we even outperformed Woodstock with, with the bill. Um, Woodstock, of course, had been the year before. And so we, we were just now being noted as like the biggest festival in the world, probably a bit like people talk about Glastonbury today. And, and we pulled it off, and it, it did have this massive attendance. The figures of 600,000 is typical when, when people write about it, but it was, <laughs> that's probably double what it really was. It was probably more like about 300. But, you know, it, it was difficult to know what the actual figures were. So many people arrived and didn't have tickets, and were, there was a huge hillside overlooking the site that became a grandstand. It was out of control for, in terms of ticketing. Um, there was a massive event, but it, it was this critical mass of having to, you know, get all those artists on there and, and put something on that would bring people across the water onto an island to come and see it. Um, I I've got an image here that um, that gives it a bit of context for everybody. It's, it's, it's quite how big it is that we're talking about, that Dad's talking about here. Hang on. Um, you can see 
you can see here people sat on the hill overlooking and then all these people in the middle here. I mean, it's just insane. You're only seeing about half of it there. Yeah, it, it was a it was a mega event. And I think that when you get what, – what we discovered was that when you get something that's really going to be big like that, mm -hmm. it becomes self-promoting and self-advertising. And that's what critical mass is, yeah. right? Although we did do a lot of advertising, paid advertising, the, the coverage was enormous. And I've still got all the press cuttings in our press cuttings archive. And every, every local paper in the country was reporting on it every week about the build-up, what, what who the latest artists were, you know, being booked. And, you know, we we drip, drip, drip all these artists out all summer. And I think we had a we made a challenge for ourselves that we were going to get the front page of the Melody Maker every week, like about twenty weeks, something like that. I mean, it was. Um, did you achieve that? We did more or less. I, I think um, we didn't get the main headline every week. We did many weeks, but we got mentioned on the front page every week, one way or another. And the way that worked, by the way, was that one of the key things about the Alawite Festival was my brother Ronnie. Mm. It was it was that tenacious in many ways and one of the ways in which he was very effective was he he was a former estate agent and he knew about selling he knew about business and and he was very business oriented much more than me and he ran the press department and he just made it his business to get publicity he knew that publicity meant sales and it was all publicity driven and they would cook up stories you know all sorts of ridiculous stories were, were leaked out each week to to get some publicity I mean, there were stupid things, some of them were really hideous. I mean, for instance, Tiny Tim was on the bill, and, and a story was put out that Tiny Tim had insisted that his check for payment should be written on the side of an elephant and, 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 and would be personally presented at the bank. Now, that was completely absurd, but, you know, the papers printed it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just one that springs to mind, but... The, the various sort of daft things like that were, were coming up. Looking back then, what, especially around critical mass, like what do you feel the key lessons from the Isle of Wight Festival are that you feel are still relevant today? Because obviously there are some things that aren't. Like you can't call Bob Dylan's manager. Um, it's There's probably a higher barrier to entry to get through to some people, but just in general. I mean, I do, I do hear stories regularly nowadays of people who done this sort of thing and managed to get through to important people and and present something to them and get them involved i mean that does happen it's not it's not easy um it was really easy in those days but it's not easy now but it can be done so don't rule that out totally i frequently hear it when you listen to things like desert island discs and people telling their story of where, where the breakthrough came and it was often by contacting the right person getting through to them uh, i think this Publicity is a hugely important thing to to find ways of getting your getting your product out there um, without having to pay because I mean advertising is like really really expensive. Free advertising is is often much more effective than paid advertising because it can reach a lot more people and it, it goes with a certain amount of authority because it's like editorial rather than paid advertising. So publicity is is very very important. But I, I can give you another example of. If I can sort of fast forward now 50 years or more, um, one of the things I've been involved with in the last three or four years is the Oxford Independent Book Fair. 
mm -hmm. uh, which I formed with three partners. And we, we put on this event every year for independent writers and publishers and printers and people in the indie world rather than the, the big established publishing houses. And the first couple of them we put on at um, was effectively a church hall, but at quite a big church hall. We had about 40 stall holders. And my in instincts were that this is never going to work unless we can move to a bigger venue because mm -hmm. we need this critical mass. We need to get it so big that it becomes self-publicizing, that everybody knows about it and that the media write about it. And my partners were very hesitant. They didn't like to sort of talk at all. Very Last frustrating for such a visionary like yourself. <laughs> well, they just thought I was a bit of a megalomaniac. And because I've been doing alphabet festivals, I was able to go over the top with the book fair. <laughs> we, did, we did last year move to a bigger venue. We moved to the university examination halls. It was a very big, grand venue. And we more or less doubled the number of stalls. And it was a big, successful event. And in November, we're going to have double the number of halls in, in that complex and probably double the number again, and by which time it'll be really big. And I believe that it will it'll be big enough to have sort of more national interest from even the national press, and it will become notable as a national event rather than a local event, because there aren't such events going on anywhere, as far as I can see. And the, the stall holders are kind of queuing up to get into it, so there's no trouble about letting the stalls. It's, it's having the, the size of the venue. And it becomes quite a big event. So it's the same principle, really. You get it so big that that it's self-promotional self because you can't afford to spend many advertising. So what are the steps then? Because uh, we've got lots of people here that are running events. You know, I run events, online ones, but they're events nonetheless. We've got lots of coaches, mentors, authors, PR specialists, people with you know, lots of different specialties in the Rebellious Business Network and the people that will be listening to this episode. If they were putting on shows, if they're putting on events of some kind, what would be your advice for them to start thinking bigger and start thinking about, right, critical mass, where something becomes self-publicizing because it's so big? How do I achieve that? What are the steps? Well, I think the, the world today is so different because of social media that that's probably where you've got to look. And mm -hmm. it, it, I would suggest it's, it's a matter of getting a following on social media one way or another and, you know, having, having a, um, a following that you can then send out information to and, and keep them engaged. That seems to be what works for a lot of people. I have an example. I mean, you're a rebellious business network, but there's, there's, there's a, a firm that I know called Guerrilla Publishing, which is the same sort of thing. And they, they're dealing with independent writers and publishers. And it's all about getting, getting social media coverage and building up followings and different ways of doing it. Um, and you, I'm sure that you're already doing this as best you can, Things like um, promotional things with some free gifts or, um, or special deals, whatever, special interest things to, to keep people engaged. That I would thought was, was the equivalent today. And it depends on the business as well, of course. I mean, all these businesses are different. And putting on rock and roll events are probably very different to 
I don't know, publishing a book or or um, ma making a, a product that you're going to sell. And and I suppose I, I've learned lots of little rules in business that seem to me self-evident. The, the people that really make it big, they don't make it big because they've got a a magic project, a product that everybody wants. That's a great product. They make it big because they find a way of selling. It's the selling that that makes them big. Um, so you, you need the product, of course, but it's how you sell it and being able to sell it that that, that makes makes you hit the big time. You got to have those sales, and um, no matter how good your product is, if nobody knows about it and it, or it doesn't sell, it's not going to get you anywhere. But of course, you can sell a lot of an awful products and then get a load of negative word of mouth happening. Well, it's got to be decent. I'm not saying you, you can just do with a rubbish product. You've got to have a decent product, of course. Yeah. That goes without saying. But it doesn't matter how great your product is. If you, if you don't make the sales, then it's not really get, getting you very far. Um, and you can look at people like Richard Branson, for instance. Or, um, although, by the way, there is an example of somebody who made it big selling crap products, and that was... Um, Alan Sugar, <laughs> with with his, it was Amstrad, wasn't it? He started out with and these sort of stereo systems that that were were pretty ropey, to say the least. They're cheap and ropey, but, and he managed to sell them. So you, you can have a cheap and ropey product that, that will sell, and you can make it big. The but the the interesting thing about that example is we remember him more than we remember the stereos. So is there also an element of he was very good at creating a lot of a lot of PR and whatever about his personal brand and about him. And well, that's that was, how I think that was stage two in his story where, where he he'd already become quite a, a big shot and, and he was already um you know multimillionaire successful. Mm -hmm. He starts doing a TV program, um, which is licensed from Donald Trump, who'd been running the same thing in America for 18 years or or many years at that time. And, and so The Apprentice was um, an American product that, that they decided to do in Britain. They were looking around for a businessman that could run it, and they chose him. Now, that made him ultra-famous, of course. Mm -hmm. but prior to that program, um, not many people would have known his name, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, but he had already made it big. He made it big with Amstrad and, and then other electronic stuff. So whether it was later any good or not, I don't know. But it, certainly the early Amstrad thing was was pretty ropey end of the market. So going back to the book fair, you said that you wanted to make the book fair critical mass, but you were you were coming up against other people that were worried it was going to be, you know, too big an idea and they wanted to kind of keep it small. I feel like that's quite relevant for the general landscape of business owners. I know there are a lot of people that really want to become very successful but they're scared to get out in front of the camera for the first time or, you know, don't feel confident in themselves to do that. Um, for instance, you know, having a really big audience can be, the idea of it can be terrifying because you also can get a lot of negative comments and people troll on the internet these days. What would you say to someone who who wants that, who wants to have a big audience, but is is scared to? Like, they, they feel a bit freaked out by the idea of having that large audience or getting out in front of that camera or being that person that's very well known. And maybe for a number of reasons, maybe they've got fear of failure, maybe they've got fear of success, maybe they're 
people pleasers and worried about upsetting people or having people that don't like them. There can be a number of reasons. What would you say to someone that is that wants that, but they're just they're a bit fearful of going for it? Well, that's a difficult question because that that involves people's personality and mm. um, if you've got a fear of speaking to an audience, for instance, and, and, and your your work requires you to do so, um, then that could be, if you've got a phobia about that, it could be a problem. You might need some counselling or something. I don't know, but, but that's <laughs> extreme. But basically, yeah. I think it's, it's important not to, to be a person that's not willing to be intimidated, I would say. It's really important that, that you've got to stick to what you believe in and not care about what stupid people have to say. I mean, you really, you can't be intimidated by people trolling you or, or whatever. Um, as long as you do things with integrity. And I mean, if you're doing really bad things and get caught out and then it, it all goes on social media, then, then that would be embarrassing and damaging and it would be your own fault. But if you do things with integrity um, and you, you, you try and treat people decently, um, treat your customers decently, really important, then it, it will pay off in the end and you should be quite fearless as you go forward and, and not be intimidating. And the trouble is, there's so many idiots out there. They're willing to try and intimidate you, and, and come out with stupid remarks. And some people are sensitive, and they take it they take it badly. But if we we had going back to the Isle of Wight in 1970, mm. got this raft of artists, the five day festival, with free camping, lots of facilities, everything you can imagine, and the tickets were four pounds each. Now. Okay, we had inflation since then, but it was the price of a double album, right? So that was so compared with today's festivals. I mean, they're typically two or three hundred pounds straight off, aren't they? And that yeah. may not even include camping. Well, four pounds was really cheap, but people were still complaining, saying that uh, it was a rip-off, you know, and that, and that music should be free, and uh, we were just coining it in at their expense, and uh, all sorts of accusations. Well, we were quite fearless about carrying on and not being intimidated by that sort of thing. So I think we and we what we were doing, we really were trying to offer good value. And and we did we did provide good value, obviously. I mean it speaks to itself, doesn't it? You get all those artists for a five day festival for four pounds. We were treating our customers really well. So I think that's a really important thing. I think the same with our book fair today. My priority is Trying to get sales for the, for our, our customers are are the stallholders that pay us to have a stall, and mm -hmm. my priority is to try and make sure that they have a good deal and they make some sales. You know, it's worth their while. Um, so you've really got to try and look after your customers. Basically, really important, and you, you do it with integrity. And, and then, if you get any sniping about it coming from the sidelines, just ignore that because if you know you're doing the right thing, I don't think you should worry. That would be my advice, but that, that may be easier said than done in some situations. Yeah. There are always going to be people that say negative stuff. I've had people comment on my videos saying that uh, this is back when I was affiliate marketing. My parents would be ashamed of me if they knew I was I was such a con artist. Um, I've also been accused of being a sex offender. I mean, I found that one astounding. You get all sorts of ridiculous comments and people saying all sorts of things. Um, and it's um, it's quite baffling. But I also see it as a sign that you are starting to get big because 
critical mass surely comes with two sides. I mean, when you were getting critical mass with the um, Isle of Wight Festival, there was obviously a lot of people that had some things to say about you bringing all those people to such a small island. I mean, it's probably the first time so many people have even been on that island in history, surely. And there comes with a side of negativity. And I think that that what you're saying about don't, don't let the bastards get you down, you know, be strong. Don't let people intimidate you. I think it's really, really important because if you feel like you're in alignment with your integrity, your values are in the right place, you're doing the right thing, then everybody else's opinion is just an opinion. That's right. And I think that by and large, we did ignore the kind of critics that were saying offensive things, for instance, and, and saying that all these people coming along were going to bring disease and... Oh, well, I mean, it can, might seem hard to believe, but the local bus company, the, the Isle of Wight bus company, advertised in the local paper after the event to assure people that following the festival, that, that all the buses that have been used have been disinfected. Oh, my God. Right. So, I mean, it gives you an idea of, of what kind of mindset there was among certain people in those days. You know, I mean, I didn't you'd get anything like that today. And it's as though these people were were really sort of foul sort of creatures that were going to come and bring disease. I mean, people wrote to the local paper in droves about the disease that was going to be brought, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, especially in bringing drugs to the Isle of Wight and, and corrupting all our young people. I mean, just endless stuff like that. And, of course, it, it was quite laughable in a way, you know, but at the same time, we, we did have a serious opposition that we had to fight. I mean... It, You've got to brush that aside and just got to do what, what, what you do with integrity and do the right thing. So we throw the word rebellious around a lot here. It's a word that's used in almost every sentence. What does being rebellious mean to you? I think you've got to be willing to challenge the, the status quo, the way people normally assume that, that you, you do things. And I do a lot of rebellious things in, in my life. For instance, 30, 40 years ago, I decided, and our family decided at the time, that we were not going to buy any more Christmas presents. <laughs> that, that, there was that a, was my childhood, ladies and gentlemen. It was, a, it was a hideous, it was a hideous thing to do. You know, that pe- buying stuff for people that didn't want the stuff, people didn't care to impress people that didn't care. You know, I mean, it would, and there's a competitive element in the family, and we just didn't want to be a, a part of it, and we just sucked into it by social norms. Yeah, I can remember marching you into Oxfam when you were about ten years old and handing over hundred pounds and say, "Look, this is the money I might have spent on your Christmas present, but it's going to children who've got absolutely nothing," and and trying to understand that. And it was so that's rebellious in a way. And I, I'm the only one of the family that's kept it up. I should add, well, everybody else caved in after a few years; they couldn't handle it because they were getting criticisms. And my dear mother, who uh, late mother w- was would say things like, well, we, we, we like to give, you know, we, 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 we prefer to be generous and thinking that that's what it's all about. Um, didn't understand. But it is true, isn't it? I mean, I think we worry too much about what other people will think. I mean, yeah, I know that right. you, you definitely had some stick about your view on Christmas presents in the past, but you stand firm because that's yeah. what you believe in. And yeah. I really admire that about you. Well, that, that that's one example. I mean, a number of things I could point to, but... Um, rebelliousness in business, again, 
you don't have to accept all all the norms. You have to keep within the law um, and certain conventions of politeness and, you know, just, just obvious social conventions. But by and large, you know, you've got to do your own thinking. One of the most informative things that happened to me, by the way, when I was 16 and I started working as an apprentice in a newspaper, uh, I was a printer. I did a five-year apprenticeship, but I, I met this fellow apprentice who was a bit older, and he he had a little saying all about the importance of having a mind of your own. And, and he was always talking about having a mind of your own, and it really impressed me as a 16-year-old, and I was stuck with it all my life. You know, and so that's really important, have a mind of your own. Yeah. And <laughs> Quite basic, really, but actually. No, basic, but, but a lot of people don't. Was they just follow the crowd. Too quick to 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 just assume. Later on, I did a course, in, a university course uh, on popular culture, and it was also very informative and and impressive on me. And it, it was all about the kind of things the dominant. Do you know what the dominant ideology is? The dominant ideology are those things that we do, which we regard as being common sense. Hmm. Now, okay, well. Is common sense, for instance, that we buy Christmas presents. Well, is that really common sense? I mean, that's, that's a dominant ideology, but but um, but you, you can you can always buck the trend of the dominant ideology. It, it, it's common sense that the man of the household will carve the turkey, for instance. I mean, that, that sort of thing that that we always do, or that or that you know. The, not, You're trying not, to say the woman will be in the kitchen doing the cooking, yeah, the woman, wondering you, if it's going to be socially yeah, acceptable. To so all of the all of these norms <laughs> that we regard as being common sense, that that then they don't necessarily hold good all the time, and you you should be ready to challenge them. Yeah. Um, and say, do your own thinking and make your own judgments, and don't just go along with what what everybody's always told you to think. So does that mean you always kind of should really have a reason for why you're doing it so that you can back yourself up, not only in defending yourself in front of others, but in defending yourself to yourself when you'll start to question, shit, am I doing the right thing? Would you say that you always have a reason and you work out a reason for something? Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, let me give you another example, which is slightly <laughs> off the topic, but, um, well, maybe on the topic. When, um, when I was about... 30. I'd already been married and divorced, and I was in a settled relationship. Um, and I saw an item on television, a little sort of magazine item. Mm. This couple who they were actually living in a caravan and they're married, and they, they decided to get divorced. And they were getting divorced to show each other how much they loved each other because they wanted to say, We're, we're staying together because we want to be together, not because of a bit of paper that says we're married. And they mm. actually went and got divorced. Now, I thought that was the most romantic thing I ever heard. <laughs> now, that completely flies in the face of convention, doesn't it, and what you're told you've got to do. And I've, from that moment onwards, I've always been a little bit skeptical about the institution of marriage, about whether it's you know, yeah. that, that useful a thing and, and whether you, know, you should be in a relationship that you, you, you stay in because every day you earn the right to be in it, not because you've got a marriage certificate. And then that can make your life more valuable. So that's a, is that a way of being rebellious? Yeah. Well, 
not everybody would agree with that. And you certainly shouldn't for, force your opinions on somebody else either. I mean, that, that would be a bad thing to do. It's really interesting for me hearing the way that you're describing rebellious. Because, I mean, as you, as you say, there are so many contexts and so many ways in which that word is used. And it is just a word from the dictionary. But the way that, that we use it is that it's about being a, the wildest, most extreme version of you or really being yourself in a world where you have been expected to and maybe you've wanted to for a lifetime fit in to society, to school, to university, to the mums in the mum circle or the, the dads on the golf course. I'm being stereotypical now. But basically, it's an act of rebellion to then have a business. And you realise when you when you start this business, you're like, oh my God, I actually need to stand out because people need to know I exist. This blending in is not going to be helpful for me now. In order to achieve critical mass, in order for the press to write something about you, in order for you to actually sell your books or for you to get people watching your videos, there's got to be something different about you. And I feel that there already is. You don't need to change who you are because the thing that's different about you is the fact that you are a unique individual with your unique experience, with your unique personality. And yeah, we've all got a doppelganger somewhere, but we're all pretty individual and pretty unique. And so if you step into really being yourself and you fearlessly and courageously do that, you challenge the status quo by challenging not for the challenging it not for the sake of it, but because actually that's not what you think or what you believe, or you think there's a better way of doing something then you're stepping into that. And I feel like that is a real act of rebellion, especially if you've had a lifetime of feeling like you just needed to fit in. I don't know if you have, Dad, had a lifetime of being to fit in. I don't think that's something that's in your dictionary, but I think for a lot of us, it, it really has been. In some ways you do need to fit in, but in other ways you don't. And you've got to do your own thinking and, and base mm -hmm. your ideas and conclusions on something substantial. I, I mean, another example in my life, if for what it's worth, is that if you take motoring, now I've been a lifelong motorist and I have a car and I, I don't drive as much as I used to, but I do drive. I'm aware that there are problems with driving because there are too many cars on the roads and they cause pollution and all the rest of it and all the bad things about cars. Now, I'm in favour of the government doing everything they can, they can to crack down on the motorist to deter the motorists from driving unnecessarily and to make motoring even more expensive, even though it's going to hit me. So you, you can believe in something and, and just go through with it and be willing to go through with it and, and just face up to your beliefs. And I think that's, that's an example for me where, you know, you can be doing one thing, but you know that it's not necessarily a good thing and it needs the government to crack down on you to stop you doing it. <laughs> Um, and not complaining about it. Now, most motorists are really complaining about whenever something's done to um, to curb their activities, where it's like more difficulty in parking or, or more costs on fuel or whatever, and everybody's moaning about it. But the reality is if you, you need to be brutally honest with yourself and know that there's got to be a good thing because there are too many big problems facing us with, with um, all our roads being chock-a-block and you can't, move around properly mm. apart from the pollution and the and everything else so that that's the kind of way in which you can be honest with yourself and even though it might go against you you've still got to be honest with yourself and let let that sort of help you make your decisions and how that relates to business i'm not sure 
Well, that was a kind of personal, a personal side of how you live your life, isn't it? But then there's, you know, with the, we were talking earlier about with business, you need to put yourself out there. We've got social media these days and it is more important than ever before that your business is, is relatable to humans. It is a kind of personal touch that you're looking after clients in a very personal way, no matter if you're corporate or whether you're an individual solopreneur. You know, the human element of business is is very, very important because we are selling to people and creating that connection is is really important. And I believe that as solopreneurs, building a personal brand, we have a massive advantage on the big companies because it's very difficult for them to be human. They're a big, big organization, whereas we are one, two, maybe three people max. And it's much easier for us to really be ourselves, which makes us more relatable, allows people to connect to us. But in order to do that, there is an element of needing to get over yourself, be okay with yourself, needing to know who you are, know what your values are and support yourself. And and that can be very difficult, especially if you're someone that's from a people-pleasing background. I find it difficult to say things that relate to the businesses of your community, I, not knowing what they all are and what kind of business we're talking about. Yeah. And I can only speak very, very generally about how things have applied to me. I, th- I think there are many episodes in my life where I have been over and um, I've just completed my memoirs and it, the title of it is The uh, Incurable Optimist. And I've gone into projects really optimistic about what I can do repeatedly and and often come unstuck and sometimes got some measure of success. But I've also found, thinking about my life story, that I've been a serial failure in my life. Um, In as much as of all the projects I've been involved in, and there there are probably about six or eight major projects I've been involved in, very different sort of things, that have one way or another have not been sustainable. And so I've then moved on to something else. Now, I haven't moved on to something else because I got fed up and bored. I've moved on because I've reached a point where this is no longer sustainable. So therefore, you could say it's a, a failure, even though in some ways it may have succeeded and maybe made quite a lot of money or whatever, or, or achieved some of its objectives. Um, it depends what your measurement of success is, I guess. Well, what I is- think the measurements in business, if you think of the great business people like Richard Branson, somebody, they've been in, in, involved in projects. They've been sustainable. Mm-hmm. And they built and built and built, and they become sort of multi billionaires. With my projects, they've they've not been sustainable, and I have to start again on something different and something new. So I don't know, but it, each one, I think there's a pattern where I've been over ambitious. I think the Albert Festival is a case in point where we didn't we didn't do the small steps that a normal business would do. We went off like a rocket, you know, and. <laughs> And then within two years, it was only two years, I mean, two years and one month from from the, the first festival to the third, you know, we, we kind of came unstuck and we couldn't do those anymore. Um, now, there are promoters about, I mean, Harvey Goldsmith, I don't know if everybody knows who Harvey Goldsmith is, but he's probably about the biggest promoter in the world. He did Live Aid and all sorts of things. And he was somebody we worked with early on in London uh, in 1971, and he was just starting out in those days. And he did he was doing promotions in small clubs and things and built up a promotion business. And over time, 
over a 50-year career, became, becomes the biggest promoter in the world. Well, all of what I've done, I've tried to do things too quickly and gone off yeah. like a rocket, and <clears> then <throat> then it's not been sustainable. That is a, I've seen so many companies go, grow very fast and fall very, very yeah. hard. So, so I think the small steps are really important, not all the time, but but invariably, you know, you've got to you've got to make the first small steps and, and build up, um, and not expect to go off like a rocket. I remember when when we're doing, I, I started an environmental charity, um, called the Millennium Debate at the beginning of the century, and I had this idea that within a very short period of time we would be the biggest website on, on the world wide web. You know, that uh, would have. The, bigger than the BBC and bigger than anybody could mention on, on the internet. And of course, it didn't happen, not remotely. And that was the kind of ambition I had in my mind that we could do this. And we, I had ways in which we were going to do it. It didn't work. But you achieved a lot with that. I don't know how well, much yeah, we, we did achieve quite a lot with, We did achieve a lot with that charity and that, that project. And it, it did run for about seven years. But, but with that, I'm, I'm highlighting that particular ambition about being the biggest website mm. in the world. Yeah. Um, think well. Everybody, everybody cares about the environment, you know. So everybody's going to be interested in this, you know, because we all have, <laughs> we all have to live in the environment. So, you know, it's this kind of naive. You think at my age, I would have learned a thing or two, but um... it was also in a time though where it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it's only recently. Back then, when you were doing. I mean, I was a, I was a child when you were doing all the environmental stuff. And it wasn't widely accepted or talked about. It was seen as something very left-wing, very hippie-like. It's a lot more sort of normal discussion these days. I mean, we didn't even have recycling back then. No, no. Well, it brings me to another of my little sayings, which is never be a pioneer. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I don't want to put people off being a pioneer, but uh, that's been my experience, that you, you pioneer something and then, then before you know it, it's not worked out like you thought, and then somebody else is doing it later that that picks it up and runs with it, and they do make a success of it. We have a question in relation to that from John asking, but the festival is still going. Why is your dad still not making income from it, and or why is he not involved in it anymore? Well, I mean, that's a huge story in and of itself. Okay, well, well, just very quickly on that, the following the 1970 festival, there was an act of parliament that banned festivals in the Isle of Wight effectively for the next 30 years. Um, <laughs> we, we brought about, you know, sort of the Isle of Wight bill became law and we couldn't hold festivals in the way that we had. It was picked up in, in the Queen's Jubilee in 2002 um, by the council itself, who, who did a deal with a London promoter, John Giddings at Solo, and started it up again quite independently of us. So it's nothing to do with us anymore, although we did get some small recompense for copyright items. But... Um, yeah, was, we got stopped basically. What what impact do you feel like the Isle of Wight Festival had on the festival world, um, and how did it change? How did it change the face of that? Did it did it have any impact on it? Oh, I, th- I think it did. I mean, for instance, the the Bob Dylan Festival, I think, was the first real camping festival, and because it was on an island, people had to camp. You couldn't go home at night, which is what previous festivals had done. Um, a lot of people go home at night and come out the next day if it was going to be running for more than one day. So we had to provide campsites, and that kind of held it in the, the camping festival. It also put festivals on the map as a thing, you know, that happens. 
in, in a big way. Prior to that, it had been a very niche thing nobody had even heard of. It, 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 the idea of having rock and roll acts in a field, you know, it was all very, very small time. So it really did put it on the map. But it, with Glast Glastonbury started up the following year by two people who were at the Isle of Wight who went off to say, we're going to do a festival and we're going to do it properly and we're going to make it free. And they put on a free festival at Glastonbury in 1971. And they had David Bowie and they had various other acts. And they just lost a fortune, lost all their money. And then that was the end of that. And it was about seven or eight years later that Michael Evis decided to do his own festival at Glastonbury. So the first Glastonbury festival did come out of the Isle of Wight in, in, indirectly. Um, but it, it was seven or eight years later that Michael Evis decided to, to do it. Tell us about one of the most unforgettable moments from the festival that still makes you smile today. Well, I mean, one of the things I, I have written about is when I arrived in 1969 to the Bob Dylan Festival mm -hmm. on the Friday evening, and Bob Dylan's going to be appearing on the Sunday. So the first day of the festival, in other words, Friday evening, I've been in the office all day. And we drive to the site along these country lanes and the hippies everywhere, and it's a job to get through with the car. And I got to the backstage. Um, the, we're, we're driving alongside the walls to the arena, so you couldn't really see what's going on the other side of the wall. And I was kind of ushered into the backstage area and, we got, and up onto the back of the stage, up this ramp. And the compare said, come and have a look at this. And he took me around to the, to the wings of the stage and suddenly I got this view of people as far as the horizon. <laughs> and the, 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 the sheer shock of that and this feeling that we'd done it, you know, we've done it. And also this feeling of sort of slight trepidation that this is now happening and it's going to take its own course. There's no one human being that's going to change the course of this now. It's going to take its own course. There's so many people involved and we didn't have communications in those days. We didn't have walkie-talkies. And it was just going to take its course with this feeling of, wow, what a thing. And just the size, sight of this audience, like an ocean of people in front of me. You know, the sheer shock of that. It was a very happy moment in a way. I can't imagine how that felt. Um, that, is, that is insanely amazing. Give me one more moment. That, um, when we heard that Bob Dylan would accept our also, he was going to do it. I had a um, a phone call from Burke Block manager. And he said, hey, Ray, I've sent you a telegram. I've been trying to get through on the phone all afternoon. I couldn't get through because of the international lines or something. I said, oh, really? What's happening? He said, well, I just, I'll, I'll read you the telegram. And it said, Bob Dylan and the band will accept. And I said, wow. And that was a fantastic moment. I was standing there with this phone in my hand talking to him. And he was running through a load of details about things. And, and then he said, and next Tuesday, we need you here in New York to bring a lawyer, sign the contracts, blah, 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 and all this stuff. This is on a Wednesday, right? He wanted me there next Tuesday. And, and he said, and Bob wants to meet you. At which point I had to sit down. By the way, my dad is the biggest fan of Bob Dylan, always has been, always will be. So well, it would be, but I, I wasn't prior to that. Prior to all of this bidding for Bob Dylan, I didn't know anything about him. I was not a fan. And it was only in the course of talking to his management that I was one by one going into the, the record store and buying a 
another album yeah. of his and listening to it and, and gra he gradually realized, you know, what was special about him. Um, it grew on me over a period of a, of a couple of months and um, from not knowing anything whatsoever about him, I, I mean, I just heard his name, of course, and that was about all. I didn't know what all the fuss was about. And I, I did, it did actually enlighten me to what all the fuss was about. Okay. Dad, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure well, to have well, you. Thank on. you for having me and good luck everybody who's listening in and um, I hope your businesses go incredibly well in 2024.